I think when I spoke about uh, the First Noble Truth last week, I may have mentioned that the Buddha described that there are three characteristics to all phenomenal existence, to all experience, uh, one being dukkha, the unsatisfactory quality nature of experience, one being impermanence, the constant change and flux, and the third being uh, not-self, anatta. So tonight I want to talk about uh, anicca, impermanence. And um, sometimes these are called, each of these three at times may be what is more obvious to us in life, in our practice. And sometimes it's talked about these are like three dhamma doors, you could say. Sometimes anicca is the uh, experience, the perception that's just much more obvious to you that's just showing up a lot and that's kind of your way into reality. Sometimes it's the unreliable, the dukkha aspect. Sometimes it's the not-self aspect. Not to worry because they all come together in how things really are. They're all connected. But tonight I want to talk about uh, anicca, in particular, the perception of impermanence. Because this is really how the Buddha spoke about it, about how it's freeing. So these are two two quotations from the Buddha, from the Samyutta Nikaya. Bhikkhus, so he's talking to practitioners, there is no form, the rupa, no feeling tone, no perception, no volitional formation, no sankharas, and no moment of consciousness that is permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change that will remain the same, just like eternity. Nothing, he's saying. Then he took up a little bit of soil in his fingernail and said, this is like the handful of leaves, a little bit of soil under his fingernail, and he said, there's not even this much form that is permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change. If there was just this much form that was permanent, This living of the holy life for the complete ending of dukkha could not be seen, could not be understood. But because there is not even this much form that is stable, permanent, unchanging, this living of the holy life for the complete abandoning of dukkha is understood, is discerned. So that's a powerful statement. And in the In the big picture, as we go through life, of those three characteristics of the change, of the unreliability, of the not-self, the aspect of change, of impermanence, in a way, seems the most obvious. No. I mean, probably no one's going to really argue that things change. So I'm not here to give you all these examples of how things change and talk you into it. Because that doesn't work. So this is the next statement from the Buddha, a little farther on. Bhikkhus, when the perception of impermanence is developed and cultivated, this perception eliminates all sensual craving, it eliminates all craving for becoming, it eliminates all ignorance, it uproots all mana, all the conceit of I am. Okay, those four things mean completely awakened, right? When the perception of impermanence 
is developed and cultivated. So this, to me, is really the way in, the way that really uh, I find the, the avenue in to really explore both why it is that we don't recognize impermanence, why it is that if we really understood it, it's not transforming our understanding, it's not uprooting all of these things. And so as the Buddha says, it's really not the fact that things are permanent and then if we have a great opening experience, everything starts changing. Obviously, there's not even this much that's permanent. But we don't perceive. And perception, and Annie's going to talk about this in much more detail in a couple of nights, but perception, the way the Buddha talks about it, is a very specific function of mind arising in every moment of sensed consciousness. So perception is that quality that uh, recognizes what's occurring. So if I make, if I do this, we recognize hearing, and then the mind, I know it's a bell. That's so based on memory, based on culture, based on a lot of things, which I'm not going to go into because I'm sure Annie will. But it just arises naturally. So we name it bell, but Maybe we don't recognize what that is. We hear that sound and we don't know. Well, half the time when we don't know, our mind just makes something up. And we think that's accurate. We don't really recognize how frequently our perceptions are not accurate. So just to stick to impermanence, that's what the Buddha is saying. When the perception, moment to moment, of change, of constant change, when that perception is developed and cultivated, that opens us up into, that's recognizing reality as it is. And that recognition, that wisdom, is the doorway to freedom, to liberation from dukkha, from confusion. That's what the Buddha is saying. So I want to talk tonight just some personal ruminations about perception of impermanence and some of my own musings about maybe some of the aspects that... Uh, get in the way of our accurate perception at times, at times. So the nature of insight, really, one of the ways insight occurs is simply that the perception shifts and we recognize things as they are. The Buddha spoke about three kind of levels of wisdom, all of them useful, but different levels. And the first one uh, called Sutta Maya Panya is, Panya means wisdom, is um, wisdom of what is heard, what is learned, you know, which is, is helpful. If we never heard the Dhamma, we wouldn't be here, you know. It's so information. I'm here blabbing to you. That's what is heard to some extent. That's, and that's a level of wisdom. That's why when we take it in and hear it, you know, when we're able to hear it. The second level, chintamayapanya, is um, described as, uh, as our intelligence, kind of that that goes in, we mull it over, not just thinking about things, but it, it's rolling around in our system, like about impermanence. Maybe you're thinking, well, yeah, I know things change, and that, you know that makes sense, and maybe you know, you're not listening to me anymore, and you're clicking through your mind, how do things change, and stuff like that. It's in the way, but it goes in, and so it's a deeper level of using our intelligence, our experience, we understand it. But this is a level where often we think we know something. We all think we know impermanence. And it's not changing a thing. 
in the, the way that we crave, the way we react. Why? Because it's not the third level of wisdom, bhavana mayapanya, which is really the insight level. Bhavana, you may recognize, I think Guy said that's the word for mental development, mental cultivation. So we can't think our way into bhavana mayapanya. And if you could just believe that, you would save yourself so much agony in the next four to ten weeks. <laughs> guess what opens up bhavana mayapanya? Just guess. What could it possibly be? Moment to moment, steady awareness of just what's arising in the whole field of experience. So anyway, bhavana mayapanya is transformative. To me, it's like it's like this insight where suddenly something shifts and we actually recognize on a deeper level. I kind of think of it like a cellular level. Wow, everything's changing. Everything's moving around. And I don't like it very much, you know, but it's, it's, a, it's a different level. And so all of the three work together. But I think the confusion between the second and the third is when we think we really know something, but we keep on... You know, getting, go, I know, I understood that. How come I'm still craving? It doesn't make sense. You know, we're, we're impatient. That's another thing. Very impatient. It's been two weeks, folks. If you're already thinking, where am I? What's going on? Put it down. Save yourself some grief. And just be present here and now. The momentum's just beginning to build. Use that. Use that just to relax into this moment now. Next moment's going to be different. That's the rest of the talk. (laughs) (laughs) So, of course, the misperception arises because of delusion, right? Similar, so the things I want to kind of just touch on in my own mind, the way, one of the ways that I think for me I've noticed the delusion shows up in regards to not recognizing <clears throat> change and permanence. One is on the, on the bigger level where change is obvious. Disease, death, old age, losing things, winter, you know. It's obvious and still we're taken by surprise sometimes. And this is where our mind knows it but still it's like, what? Now? Me? Can't be. And Especially, I think, for, for, for large changes that uh, we feel as loss, as grief, I've noticed that part of the resistance to it comes out of what I spoke about last week, our uh, habitual uh, resistance, our instinctive kind of resistance to the unpleasant, to the difficult. So we have a, a, a pulling back, a resistance to really feeling loss to really letting in even the possibility of loss and change. Not in a whipping it up way, but just the loss, the sadness, the kind of a resistance to that. As if, you know, feeling sad is a bad thing. It's part of life. So there's that. There's um, the misperception, the actively perceiving permanence in something that's changing. And there's uh, just the inattention. This moment-to-moment inattention. Annie, you're probably going to talk about the vipalasas, right? Yeah. Okay. 
we won't say that. <laughs> but just the misperception, the, the perceiving. He talks about in a group of other things, the Buddha, but perceiving permanence in what is changing. We actually perceive it wrong. And then on that perception, we base how we think about things, the decisions we make, how we act. And this is how we get so confused in life and why we're, we're suffering needlessly because we're responding to what isn't really true and wondering why it doesn't work. So just want to just share some thoughts of those three areas. The first one, the sense of it's so clear, this is what I talked about last week, that to everybody, everybody in this world suffers loss, grief, sadness, People and things we love go away for the whole variety of reasons, not just sickness and death. Circumstances change, things fall apart, and we really experience a grief and a loss. And there's such a tendency that we don't want to know about that, that you know, just pretend it's never, never, never going to change, and then suddenly it's over and we're just you know, thrown back. But the one thing, I just it's really part of being human. To think that if I don't understand impermanence because I feel grief when my partner and I split or when I know someone's ill and going to die, or we pull back from that or think, if I was really a good Buddhist, I would just say, they will not be seen by me again, which is what the Buddha could say. I think, I can't do that, and so this whole thing is, you know, crazy, that's twisted. Of course we feel sadness. We do. It's human. It's human. And I actually kind of personally feel until we're complete arhats, there's going to be sadness. There's going to be grief at loss. We don't need to be afraid of that or resist it. It's simply an arising, really understandable experience of mind and heart. And in some ways, I mean, it's because we're not completely awakened, but when we really can allow it, in my experience, I could really allow grief. It's kind of a kind of... Um, a purity to it. Not the grief of I shouldn't or they shouldn't, but just absolute loss. It's like this. You can't pretend it didn't have happened. The grief comes. When there's no resistance, just let it move through. That's a kind of a, a sense of um, it comes also out of the love that was there, and it just moves out again because it's also impermanent. I experienced that a lot when my sister died quite suddenly, and um, so there was, it was one of those things, you can't pretend it didn't happen, you can't get into wishing, that's just how it is. And so for some reason I had no um, resistance to the grief at all. And it would come really strong at all different times of day for months and months, but I just would let it move through. And it was, I can't say it was sweet, grief is grief, it's not pleasant, but there's a really a sense of it was just an expression of the love. Sure, it had attachment, but that's okay. And it would move out. It never lasted that long. You know, it could be like laughing and happy the next minute. It would come and go. It's just part of life. One of my favorite stories from the suttas is about Ananda, who, as many of you know, was for the last 25 years of the Buddha's life, his devoted attendant. And Ananda, was he's a lovely guy in the suttas. You can really kind of identify with him. He makes mistakes. He isn't like completely awakened. He's friendly. He's relational. So (laughs) 
I don't mean to imply others aren't, but you just get a sense of, you know, you can relate to him. Well, he's pretty up there. I mean, he's not a doofus, right? <laughs> anyway, one of the stories I like is in the uh, Mahaparinibbana Sutta, when the Buddha is telling his monks and nuns that he is going to die in a certain amount of time three months or so. And then they're all having this big discussion about how to carry on the sangha, what should we do with your remains, all of this stuff. And they're sitting there talking, and then all of a sudden the Buddha looks around and he goes, where's Ananda? Who was always, Ananda was always there when the Buddha was giving a talk. Where's Ananda? And uh, he sent a brother, please go, go find Ananda. And Ananda had gone to his lodging and he was, uh, they describe it, he was lamenting, leaning on the doorpost. He was lamenting and crying. Alas, I am still a learner with much to do. And the teacher is passing away who is so compassionate to me. Andy Olensky told me, I didn't know this, this is a, a very well-known um, uh, image from when, when later when there was images drawn the Buddha of, of Ananda lamenting against the doorpost, just crying. And so the Buddha, of course, said, go, monk, and say to Ananda, friend Ananda, the teacher summons you. So he comes to the Buddha, and the, the Buddha said, enough, kindly, enough, Ananda. Do not weep and wail. Have I not already told you that all things that are pleasant and delightful are changeable, subject to separation and becoming other. So how could it be, Ananda, since whatever is born, become, compounded, is subject to decay, how could it be that it should not pass away? But he's saying this with great compassion. He's not saying, no, no, no. He's saying, how could it be, Ananda? Haven't I said and then he goes on to really uplift his, his, his mind. He says, um, For a long time, Ananda, you have been in the Tathagata's presence, showing loving kindness in act of body, speech, and mind, beneficially, blessedly, wholeheartedly, and unstintingly. So he's saying, just make effort, trust, in a short time you also will be free. And then he goes on and on to praise Ananda some more. So just to get that sense of it's so human. And the Buddha knows that. But it's not like, oh, it's okay, it's okay, go ahead and cry. He'll never say, he'll always say, this is how it really is. And yes, you're crying now, but just have a look at how it really is and your mind and heart will open to freedom. I I just love that story because we're all in it together. We're all human, so not to flinch away or pretend we don't feel sadness or grief or be afraid to really look unflinchingly at what's going on because it might change. It not might change, it will change. But in this moment, just in this moment, it's how it is. Not to be afraid to love something because it might change. It will change. But if we're afraid of grief, then we're afraid to love. And he's not saying that. Just see how it is, but still be human. It can really lead us to a very much deeper acceptance of life and a, a flexibility and openness. You know, we don't stop caring. Maybe more deeply, less attached to caring, 
but a more deep connected caring when we can really respond when we're uh, not trying to hold on to keep everything static. There's more of a flexibility to respond in an appropriate way. This is from um, a book from some years ago called Street Zen by Isan Dorsey, who is a, and he's just, this is a little short thing where he's opening uh, Maitri Hospice in the heart of the cities for a lot of um, people with AIDS were coming. And so he's just saying here, um, we have always dealt with whatever came to the door. We had no formal plan for starting this hospice. It's, we started the hospice because death came to the door. People would come who were dying of HIV would come to the door. So he said, you can deal with a complex changing situation because you don't have to control it. You don't have to force it into an ideal pattern. You can actually allow it to be whatever it is and allow yourself to adapt to what it becomes. Because this is the way we proceed. We have the ability to respond to the immediacy of the situation. And therefore, we have to be very practical. We can be very practical. So that's taking this into the world, starting a hospice. But this comes down to our moment-to-moment experience, you know? And I'll get in a little bit more, but how much are we trying to control our sitting to meet the ideal, whatever that is, whatever your mind made up is the ideal way it's supposed to be for that sitting, and try to control it. And then when it shifts, when we talk about skillful means, that's that adaptability. Oh, before it was like this, now it's like this. What's helpful? We're like, no, before it was like this, and that's how it's supposed to be. Let's get back there. Something's wrong. You know, we don't recognize it. Open into how it is. There's another sutta <laughs> from another monk. Just so you know, they had to go through the same thing. So this monk's name is Asaji. And when the, on one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Rajagaha in the bamboo grove. And Venerable Asaji, who is a long-term bhikkhu, was sick, afflicted, gravely ill. Basically, when they say it like that, it's basically sick and dying. And he was, he was really upset, he felt. He said he was like filled with regret and remorse. And so the Buddha went to visit him. I asked him, are you, you know, reproaching yourself? Have you been lax in virtue, lax in your practice? And he said, no, no, no. So the Buddha said, well, if you have nothing for which to reproach yourself in regard to your virtue, in regard to your life, Asaji, why are you so troubled by remorse and regret? And he said, formally, venerable sir, when I was ill, formally, I could keep on tranquilizing the bodily formations. In other words, he could get concentrated. But now I do not obtain concentration. And so it occurs to me, let me not fall away. Can you relate to that? He's not, he's filled with remorse because before when I was sick, I could get concentrated and now I can't. Basically, let me not fall away means, oh my God, I've lost it all. It's all gone. Have you ever had that feeling here? You know? <laughs> I've worked for two weeks and now all these thoughts, it's all gone. It's over. Let me not fall away, right? Well, this is just that on a bigger scale. The Buddha, again. Have I not told you? (laughs) 
all that is subject to coming together is subject to falling apart. And you know, gave him a whole discourse on Nietzsche. And the fact, the conditions are different. And he says, by the way, okay, this is, I'm paraphrasing. By the way, in my teaching, concentration is not the essence. <laughs> the essence is the insight, the path, the fruition of wisdom, of understanding. So get over it. <laughs> it's like this now. The situation's different. Of course, the conditions for concentration aren't present. But the conditions for wisdom are. Seeing what's really true and seeing it's just that, that not recognizing the fact of change. Change is inevitable. Whatever arises, arises due to conditions. All those conditions are constantly changing. They change, the effect changes, and then that changes into the next moment. There's no way to avoid that. So one of the good things about retreat is in the moment-to-moment practice, we have more chance to notice this on a more subtle level. Right now I was talking on the you know, larger level of death and loss, good place to start, because already, even in the most obvious, we don't really, really cellularly know it or we wouldn't resist it. So sometimes, you know, we wonder why, why do we cling when we see really more and more frequently just going through a retreat. It's going in on the middle level and even on the Bhavana Mayapanya level, the fact that clinging is suffering. People, a lot of people are bringing that up. They're noticing, I keep clinging onto this and actually it's just suffering. Why does the mind keep doing it, you know? And there's lots of, we'll talk about that in many different ways. So I'm just going to talk about it one way in relationship to what I'm talking about now tonight. But again, this, this clinging in terms of the impermanence, you know, impermanence is really the sense of constant flux and change. Really no solid ground anytime, anywhere. And most of our little minds don't like that too much. You know, we want the clinging. We, yeah, we want the pleasant to stay, of course, and we don't want the unpleasant. But I, for me, I find underneath that, there's this sense of wanting, you know, some stability and looking for that stability in some external or internal, but some experience, some sense experience, including experience of the mind, even though we see that they're changing moment to moment. But a good one comes along, and it's like, okay, this is steady, steady. This is peace. Now I've got it. Before I was confused, but now I understand. Don't you see how the mind does that? It's It's such a trip. Oh, that was a view. I see through that. But now I know it's like this. But again, I feel the clinging in one way is a subconscious response to the unreliability of life, the out-of-controlness, you know, the, the wanting somewhere stable, the, somewhere from the Buddha in the Sutta Napata, I believe. So the search for a resting place is burning. We burn from that search. Not to need one is cool and peaceful. The search for a resting place, and that's that. Like, this is it. 
this is it. The resting place means it keeps on not changing. Not to need one is cool and peaceful. There's a Tibetan instruction just to rest at ease in whatever arises. Sometimes I think of that as our um, choiceless attention instruction. She's really recognizing and resting at ease in whatever arises. And just let whatever arises keep changing, because it will. I just want to read you two, two short little stanzas from a poem by Galway Cannell. You scream, waking from a nightmare, when I sleepwalk into your room and pick you up and hold you up in the moonlight You cling to me hard, as if clinging could save us. I love that line. You cling to me hard, as if clinging could save us. I have heard you tell the sun, don't go down. I've stood by as you told the flower, don't grow old, don't die. And yet perhaps this is the reason you cry, this the nightmare you wake screaming from being forever in the pre-trembling of a house that falls. And that's how it is to the mind that's looking for something to be stable. Then we are in the pre-trembling of a house that falls, and there's that, I don't want to know, that resistance. But when there's just the openness to this moment as it is. There's like a, just, it's not even a surrender, it's just the ability, like with Isan Dorsey, to respond appropriately, to be as it is, and change comes as it will, the presence is with that. If there's some resistance, the presence is with that. That's simply another rising experience. We're just not so trying to control not so fearful. But we can't do this with an act of will by thinking about it. This is really where our practice, our moment-to-moment practice, takes us to explore this. And we all have moments of it with this choiceless attention. Just a moment where one abides in peace. This is the Buddha again. One abides. Abides means to, to rest, to stay, to live. I'm saying that for non-English speakers. One abides in peace who does not abide anywhere. So we say, oh, here I am living. It's already moving into the next. But we can't talk our way into it. But just see, this doesn't mean we don't care. It doesn't mean, um, you know, the pre-trembling of a house that falls. I don't want to feel that. So as I said before, you pull back. You don't love, you don't care. Actually, much more present, much more responsive. The Buddha often used these uh, images, the sense of the impermanence of death as a way to wake us up to it, but not to say we don't care. But because we're really uh, not fighting, not trying to control, no longer shrinking away from the possibility of tenderness or loss, that actually takes us more deeply into connection and caring. We're not so afraid of it, and we know it will go. One short haiku that I really love. 
from, who wrote, I always forget, Isa, right? He wrote this on the death of his young daughter. He said, this dewdrop world is a dewdrop world. And yet, and yet, I just love that. That's how it is. And yet, it's dewdrop, gone like that, and yet. And that's, to me, our paradox as human beings. I don't know what it's like to be in our hunt, but this is our paradox as human beings. But with the, the courage and the wisdom that comes from the Dhamma, from really knowing and trusting, recognizing accurately the way it is, only leads us into more ease and freedom. We don't have to land in, I don't want to know about impermanence. I don't want to, we don't have to land in it. We can trust, we can open, just meet this moment. Let the next one take care of itself. So another um, way we don't quite really perceive accurately impermanence, or we assume permanence, is partly from misperception, we assume permanence, and partly from the inattention. I was once at a talk by the Dalai Lama, and he was talking about impermanence. He said, this is obvious, but I just remember how he said it. He says, one of the reasons we don't we keep being surprised by the endings of things is because we don't notice the momentariness of change. He says, well, notice like things arise due to conditions and they last for a while and then they go away. No, there's no last for a while. (laughs) (laughs) Things arise due to conditions and every mind moment, it's changing. But we don't, quite recognize that. This is what I'm talking about shaky ground. This is what I'm talking about shaky ground. Not just everything's nice, nice, nice for a while and then it goes away and then we really are shocked by the ending because we didn't see the flux as it was going on. So this is just what we start to also explore. You don't think your way into it, but this is what is one of the the great benefits of a long mindfulness retreat. We're just being mindful, bringing attention to whatever arises. And as you saw in the instructions uh, the other morning, just when when the mind's somewhat stable and just uh, unhooking from any particular experience and just attending to whatever arises, keep on with this. Sitting, walking, eating. There is no way, if there's any kind of steady mindfulness, there is no way you can't notice that stuff's changing all the time. There's no way. You say, yep, there is a way. Denial is a powerful force. <laughs> but people come, I mean, no one's done it so far now, but talk about the on a retreat and someone comes in and goes, ah, oh, I'm just sleepy all the time. It's unbearable. And you know, it's really suffering. I'll say, really, all the time? Yes. Every sitting? Well, it was the sitting early before breakfast and then after lunch, a little bit. So, right, that was all day. Oh, no, maybe. But sometimes, and it was really a lot. It was really a lot. Or I said, I'm just having this emotion. And emotions can be strong. And part of what difficult emotions tell us is, this is how 
it, even though I wasn't here before, I'm here now, and I'm going to be here for the rest of your life, right? Doesn't it feel like that? This is how it is. It's never going to change. Get used to it. We're going to be in disappointment, in grief, in fear, in heaviness from now until the end of November. You know, how can I bear it? I'm not so exaggerating that that's, you know, what the mind starts to think. So starting to really look and see. Don't even have to look for endings. Just stay present. How many sense objects arise and pass just in one sitting, just in one walking? Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, thinking, thinking, seeing, hearing, feeling. How many in one sitting? And sometimes people come and say, oh, there's too much going on. Too much for what? Too much of something's wrong. There's so many things happening. It's supposed to just be quiet. Is it? (laughs) Is it? (laughs) Once I went to Serupandita when I was sitting with him and all this stuff happening. I knew he was telling, I don't know how I knew, I knew it from other retreats, that he would tell other people to keep coming back to the breath, to keep coming back to the breath. And I would go in and I would take one breath and then all these things would be happening. I'd just be noting, 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 noting everything that was happening. And I was afraid he'd tell me to go back to the breath because it would have been really difficult because all this stuff was happening. But I was so afraid I finally brought it up to him. And I said, you know, should I be at the breath more? I'm noting all this stuff. is so much. And he's, he's looked at me and said, are you making this stuff happen? I said, no. He goes, that's anatta, out of control. That's what's happening. Note it. <laughs> and so this is part of what... We start to notice when we, when we gave the, uh, when I think Guy mentioned, just tuning in from time to time to seeing, awareness of seeing. Not so much caught in the object that's being seen, but awareness of seeing. To me, that has been so helpful, moving around through the day, because it, it don't make a big deal about it. Just, it's just relax and notice that seeing is the process. Don't make it a big thing. It's really easy. But if I'm walking and just aware of seeing is the process... Every moment, it's different, right? You're just walking every moment. The object seen is different. And we don't notice that change because we just kind of stay with a sense of the permanence, a sense of me or just seeing and thinking or stringing it together with a story. Changing every moment. When we're in this immediacy of mindfulness, just with what's happening now, this change, this... uh, momentary change starts to reveal itself. It's just how it is. No stasis ever. No stasis ever. Some years ago in a retreat, I was teaching with Joseph and a a woman who's a long, long time, long, long time meditator and a lot of uh, insight, she said to us, Oh, I've been seeing, I know for a while, I've been seeing everything changes all around me. All the experience is always changing. For years I've seen that. But I finally got it. Oh, I'm part of that. Also, on this side of things, it's constantly changing. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, constantly arising and passing different experiences. I think of it like, um, you know, if you have um, slow motion photography, not slow motion. I always think of it like if you're, if you're time lapse, that's it, time lapse. So say you're having a time lapse photography. They had 
I think it was this spring, they had a camera pointed at the, um, that, center, that center little garden there. The whole time I was here teaching, what, what is that doing there? And I, I never, they told me it was like filming one of the plants. I never got to see what they did with that. But that kind of time-lapse photography, if you plant a bulb and then just leave it, and it's slowly, you know, but it looks fast, it comes up and little leaves come up and the shoots and then the stem and the blossom and then it falls, dies, and goes back into the earth. And there's never one moment where it's just this one thing. Each moment different, the preceding moment leading into how this moment can be and this moment leads into the next moment. It's all part of the same process, but there's no moment that this is the thing, right? In constant flux, in constant change. That's us. That's everything. There's no solid. See, this is how it leads into anatta. No separate self-existing entity, constant arising and changing. Thinking about it, mm, that's where the mind might not be so happy. That's when we, the clinging comes in. No, I want something steady. But not thinking about it. And just be aware. It's like this, it's like this, it's like this. The Buddha said, the perception of impermanence, again, when it's developed, when one perceives impermanence, the perception of not-self is stabilized. And when the perception of not-self becomes stabilized, one who perceives not-self, that uproots the conceit I am, the mana, the conceit, the comparing I am, which is nibbana in this very life. So the perception of impermanence, not something you have to think about or make happen. It's just a natural effect of perceiving impermanence again and again and again stabilizes, again, the perception of not-self. So I've been talking about a moment-to-moment level of a rising sense experience on the slightly larger level of our personality. It's the same. This is from Mechi Kao, who was a Thai nun from the last century, really uh, a student of Ajahn Mun, which means she was a tough cookie, extremely. Anyway, she's saying, everything that makes a person unique changes continually and eventually disintegrates. Each personality is constantly ceasing to be what it was and becoming something new. Those factors one tends to conceive of as self are impermanent and fleeting. Everything about bodily form and the mind's thoughts and feelings is without intrinsic stability and bound to dissolve. Everything bound to dissolve. For that reason, clinging to body and mind is a major source of pain and suffering. That last part we know. That's all bound to change. Years ago, I always tell this story, but I like it. A few years ago, a friend of ours was a um, long-term practitioner. About this. She, was, um, she used to cook a lot on retreats. So on this one retreat, she was cooking, and she had a day off. You know, and so she was going to sit for that day off. And she told me later, 
she said, uh, during, with the other cooks, who all, they all knew each other well. They were all basically telling her what an aversive personality she is, was. Which, I mean, she also agreed. Often aversion came up. But that's how we tend to do. I have an aversive personality, so that's what she's being told. And we think, I'm a fearful person, whatever our stories are. We might have a couple of them. But. So she went to sit for the, this one day, and she said, I'm just going to look really carefully, because she knew how to practice. So she was just being really just steady with her mindfulness, not trying to pretend she wasn't aversive, but just being steady and just sit down and walk and let whatever arises arise, just as we're doing here. And noticing, as she's being careful, what kind of thoughts and emotions came up. She said, yeah, some aversive ones came up. But as she looked carefully, there were many, many kind, generous thoughts, many moments of generosity, many calm moments, many loving moments, many just spaced out whatever moments, and then some aversive times. That's how it is, you know. But then we take certain ones and go, this is me. And other ones we just completely ignore. And other ones, well, that, that was a moment of metta, but that was, you know, by some weird freak of nature. That had nothing to do with me, just because we practice it. But we know, left to my own devices, it's back to the aversion. It's back to the fear. It's back to the hopelessly dull, torpor-ridden, hopeless meditator. Right? That's who I am. So this is why the steady awareness, this is why continuity is your friend. Continuity is what allows the clear recognition. And so, yes, at times there's nothing to hold to, that's shaky ground. But more times than we realize, thank God you don't have to hold on to this. It's moving, it's changing. Just notice how it is. Resting at ease in whatever arises. Not having to take ownership. In myself, I think when... um, practicing or not, but when particularly we're, we're mindful, but we're kind of caught up in a personality-driven scenario like that, oh, my aversion, or what could I do? We're mindful of it, but kind of caught in it, you know, like we've talked about before. We think we have to think our way through it. Again, I know I've said this five times, I'm going to say it again, you never have to think your way through it. You have to stay with it. Sometimes the great renunciation is just to bring your attention into the simplicity of what's happening in this present moment. Just feel the foot on the ground. Just feel the breath. Just notice, oh, there's all this grief. Just notice the heaviness in the chest. Just this renunciation of surrendering into this moment. The story can just hang out there, but just let it be. That's like the great renunciation into freedom, taking refuge in awareness rather than keeping having refuge in these stories we tell ourselves. Ajahn Sumedho, I love the way he describes things, but at one point he's talking about, you know, we have ideals about what reality is, but reality, he he was chuckling, he goes, the real isn't what you're expecting, (laughs) I tell you. (laughs) Just really look, and he goes, with steady awareness, We do recognize the nature of conditioned phenomena. Conditions are continually arising and ceasing in consciousness. 
continually arising and ceasing in consciousness. And when with awareness we recognize this, we start to awaken out of our confusion and our delusion to the way things really are. This is from Ajahn Sumedho. Just so here we're noticing again and again conditions arising and ceasing and known in consciousness. This is arising and it's known. It's gone and it's known. This is known. This is known. Notice endings. Notice comings. Notice the constant change. And it's known. Taking refuge in the awareness, not in the story, not in the object. One of the... um, in many of the suttas, when someone first is awakened, becomes what's called a stream enterer. There's different kind of things they say, specific lines that sort of indicate that. And one of the most well-known is, as they wake up, I really see whatever is subject to arising is subject to cessation. That's like the lion's roar of awakening. Knowing that Oh, I see. Whatever is subject to arising is subject to cessation. It's a lion's roar of freedom. So just a couple of ideas that come to my mind. Just noticing when you're assuming permanence. Because we're, you know, we have this misperception. We're saying notice the perception of impermanence, but notice when you're perceiving, assuming permanence. Anything you experience today, like I said before, fear, anxiety, self-doubt in the mind. So, oh, how am I going to deal with this in the next sitting? Any pain that came up, we said, oh no, five more hours of this. Or when you had a good whatever sitting yesterday. And now it's not like that. And we spend, even though we pretend we're not, we spend very subtly try to guide it back to how it was yesterday because that was the right way, the better way. <laughs> Never noticing that the conditions are completely different right now. Like Asaji, you know, he's sick and he's dying and he wants to be like how he was when he was 25 and sitting for 14 hours at a stretch. Okay, I made up that specific, but... The conditions are how they are now. Assuming permanence. Ajahn Chah used to say, give it, he said, just when everything, just say for whatever you're doing, this is uncertain. When we think, oh, I wonder how I'll like lunch. This is uncertain. Oh, tomorrow I'm going to be practice leader. This is uncertain. Oh, I wonder whether I'll sleep tonight. This is uncertain. Will I even get up and make it back to the room? This is uncertain. I mean, don't go nuts with it, but, you know, <laughs> just to have that sense to notice when we're just assuming. And, yeah, we plan. It's not that we pretend, oh, no, I'm just in the moment. Don't ask me to plan. No, we plan. We ring the bell. We come in here. We know what's going on, and we know it's uncertain. Right? Anything can happen at any time. To me, more the amazing thing is, I have all my stuff booked out for 2021. I mean, what a joke. It's uncertain that I'll be alive in 2021, right? But still, we do that. We work with a relative, but we know this is uncertain. Just noticing that. Another thing that I notice sometimes is when 
you've been with something difficult or pleasant, doesn't matter, and it, it leaves. We don't always notice the endings of things. Sometimes we do. But when you've been with something a while and it's gone, notice it's gone and kind of stay with noticing the goneness. This is an example I always give. It seems silly, but actually it was, it was a big insight for me. I was being really mindful while I was eating. So I was being mindful and chewing, 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 that kind of very slow, steady mindfulness. And if you notice that, it doesn't taste good after about two bites, right? It's mush, mush, chew, chew, <laughs> chew. Neutral, neutral, unpleasant. Just with being with it, swallowing it, following it all the way down, you know, and feeling this movement. And So then I said, oh, that was a concept. My mind saying that's the food going all the way. That's a concept. The, the experience in the mouth when I swallowed, that was gone. It wasn't, this is an experience that's now down in my stomach. That's an idea. The sensations in the mouth was completely and totally gone. Notice that. That seems silly, but notice that. And how we assume permanence by creating these constructs of thought, saying, oh, this is all the same thing moving along, like that time lapse of the flower. It's different, different every moment. So sometimes just notice goneness. When you think, oh, you go to bed and you think, thank God, this day is over. It has been such a heavy dukkha day. Take a moment, if you can just move aside from that aversive lens, and just reflect on it. And you'll notice all kinds of neutral, pleasant, other kinds of moments that went on. Just break that assumption of solidity and permanence. So, just the last thing I want to say, what I alluded to before, how when there's really this deep perception of impermanence, it's far from making us, oh, well, everything's impermanent, who cares? Whatever. It's, it's almost the opposite of that. It's a little bit when, when there's really the understanding of things as they are, Instead of this resistance to life, resistance to experience, fear of the unpleasant, there's a complete ability just open, just open fully into this is how it is in this moment. It's kind of like a, a real sense of opening to the wonder, the mystery, to vibrant presence. There's nothing to try and hold on to in the past or fear in the future, just totally here. As Byron Katie says, loving what is, just in this moment. Awareness of what is and loving. And from that, the response to life can actually give us much more uh, responsiveness, the Brahma Viharas that Jill talked about, courage or willingness to meet in a much uh, more flexible and sometimes courageous way because of the understanding. So I just want to end with this little quotation, a little story from Dr. Arya Ratney from Sri Lanka. You know, he's, he's in his 80s now, in his high 80s. But since the 50s, he's been running a project that he calls the uh, Sarvodaya Shamadana Movement, which is really working in rural areas <coughs> that is based on Buddhist understanding. That working with really poor people in rural areas is based on the Four Noble Truths, nonviolence, anicca, anatta. And he says it's um, 
based on the realization of the impermanence and interdependence of selves in society and nature entails the deepest respect for all. So he's really basing this work that he does, <coughs> which he describes as political empowerment of villages. And this is really poor village people, rural people in Sri Lanka. Um, rural development, Buddhist principles, nonviolent spiritual revolution to replace the structural violence and inequality as the basis of social order. So he's really, you know, quite radical but he's basing it on helping, helping the poor rural people from a sense of uh, understanding our interconnectedness, from understanding imp- um, impermanence. And I give you all that just to, so you understand this quotation from him. In 1952, a gangster was asked to kill me. I was just trying to be of service to students in our communities who were in need. And some people's financial or other interests were threatened, so they gave a contract killer some money. I heard about it, so I went to him, and I told him, this is what I'm doing. If you want to kill me, do it now, not in my school or with my students, because those places would have a bad name after that. I didn't want other people's blood to be shed. So at that time, and even now, I have that courage. To let others live, if necessary, you sacrifice. It's a spiritual motivation, because every moment we are born, we exist, and we pass away. Every moment. In our mind or body, is there anything that is permanent for two seconds? And when you understand that, when you practice it, you get a lot of courage. And even in death, you see life. So the killer, he was so good, not only did he say, oh, what a crime I would have done. And one lesson he taught me, against our conscience, we don't kill. I was told that you are a very bad person, misleading students. Because we didn't have teachers like you, we became criminals. (laughs) And he changed from that day. So I just love that story, but that's really the sense of we really understand anicca, the suffering of holding and clinging and narrow self-interest is seen through. It's really the doorway to freedom. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.